But while, while you turn there, and while we get started on this series, have any of you ever spilled food on yourself or some sort of a drink all over yourself and you don't have time to go home and change? Know what I'm saying? Driving, shaking, pothole comes, and then before you know it, oh my gosh, that turned out pretty much exactly the way I thought it would. Right there. I ruined a perfectly good cup of coffee. And then this is what you have. And you get to wherever you're going, and you have no idea how you're going to cover it up. So you make jokes about it. You make it obvious. Look, yeah, I know I've stained my shirt. You know, it's ha-ha, look at me, how clumsy I am, just to get the tension out of the room. Sometimes you might kind of sit a little bit differently so people can't see it. It's horrible. But when you get home, that's when you exercise that basic thing in futility of trying to get the stain out of your shirt which never really works does it let's just be straight up it never comes out you'll try everything you have sitting above your washing machine and even the stuff you bought from that infomercial that one time way back in the day and nothing gets the stain out it just sits here like 80 percent of it will come out but not all of it I say this and I want to, this image to stay before you today because I think many of us in the city of Knoxville I think many of us even in this room, I think we see the gospel as a stain remover that takes most of the stain out, but not really all of it. Not really. I mean, some stuff is just left over, to be totally honest with you. And for some of you, it might have been something that you've done way back in the day. A lot of guilt associated with it. A lot of shame follows you. And even though it was years ago, you wake up today and you still put this shirt on just carrying the stain with you everywhere you go. For, for some of you, it might be some sort of a secret thing, like an addiction or a sexual sin or something that you just haven't told anybody before. It might be something a little bit more, uh, I guess, just kind of under the hood. And it doesn't matter what you do every day to day. You get up, you go to work, you put clothes on, but this is always the shirt that comes out of the closet because that guilt and that shame that is associated from whatever you've done, it follows you wherever you go. Some of you, it might have been something that was done to you. And you might not have sinned against somebody, but you've been a victim of sin. You have been the recipient of some sort of an abuse. Something shameful was done to you, and it's almost like this shirt was put on you, and you wear it from day to day. You know, I do this thing at home, and it's a very wicked thing, so I'm just going to get that out in front, so don't harass me later about it. I get it. It's a horrible thing, but whenever I come into the house from a really hard run, and I'm just gross. I mean, just gross. I mean, I'm beyond sweating. It's like this, the thing that is behind sweat that has all the odor with it, and there's grass and mud all over me, and I come in. I love sneaking up on my little girls and giving them a big hug just really wrapping up on them you know because it always takes like maybe two seconds for them to realize that I'm as gross as I am and so like oh daddy and they start choking down because they realize that sweat is coming through and so they yell at me let me go let me go let me go but then they always reassure me go take a shower go take a shower and then and then you can show me love then we can love on each other right I know it's wicked it's such a jerk thing to do isn't it I don't know why I get so much pleasure in it but in our mind's eye, I think we feel like God won't have anything to do with us unless we go take a shower first, until we get our stains lifted, our stains removed. We desire more of God, but we feel like we stink too much for Him to embrace us. 
So when we start this series off, and we're starting it off today, talking about stuff that Jesus has never said, I want to focus on those who love Christ today. Now listen, if you are in this room, and you feel like you are far from Jesus, you do not pursue him, you do not worship him as king and as your hero, there's going to be a lot in this directed straight for you. But the lie, the thing that people think Jesus says, and the thing they see in their mind that he does not say is this, you are so dirty and disgusting disappointing I'm so disgusted by you I could see your dirt from here I can smell you from here and it gags me I'm so heavily disappointed in you and I'm well over the idea of you even being around now that sounds drastic and I don't think everybody in this room thinks that or thinks that Jesus says this but I think a variation of that rattles around in our skull a lot and I think a lot of you Whenever you look at God, he has a scowl on his face. And this is what he sees every day. Right? You see Jesus, but he has this disappointing, disgusted look on his face because this is all he sees. And that becomes the basis of a relationship that you have with him. And no one is more mindful and aware of your stains more than you are. Right? Because we talk to ourselves more than anyone else talks to us. And we're always reminding ourselves that today is Tuesday. This is what I'm wearing. This is what God sees. Always thinking about that stuff. Always burdened in our conscience. Isn't that fun, by the way? Walking around with a burned conscience, with guilt and undue shame all over us. It's a fantastic way to live. A troubled conscience, it makes for a bad factory. It starts producing things in our lives. And some of these things, some of you are going to recognize. I think undue guilt and undue shame it produces a timidness in us around God and around people where we feel like we don't belong in the room we feel like we shouldn't be there uh, we shouldn't show our face our presence should not be felt by others even God this is why for many of you whenever you catch yourself in a pattern of sinning let's just say you didn't put a great week together all right that's why it's hard for you to get up and go to a place where there's a lot of believers that's why it's difficult for you to show yourself in a living, living room with, with some of your friends because you've just not been performing well. And that's why some of you, you feel like you're entitled to enjoy community and you're entitled to enjoy a gathering setting like this because you have put a few good weeks together. And it goes all the way through to how we handle God as well because we could be very timid with God whenever we find ourselves in a place of just sin, pervasive pattern sin. It's hard to pray, isn't it? Isn't it difficult to read? Difficult to worship? Difficult to talk about the things of God? Difficult to relax around the things of God or the people of God? It produces a timidness in us, you know? I remember being at a conference once in Texas many, 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 many years ago and having a pastor get up and talk on the mic and he was leading everybody in prayer and this is how he starts off. Lord, it's me again. Lord, I'm sorry, it's you know me, you know. Always that scowl. Always this understanding that God looks at us, but He's not really smiling. Because all He could see is this, right? I think it also produces in us a worldly fear of God. Not an intimacy, but a worldly fear of God. 
In other words, it's going to be very difficult to see um, the beauty of God, the kindness of God, the generosity and the genteel nature of God. It's going to be very difficult to do that when at the same time you see him as this condemning punisher, ready to whoop you at any time. This is why when bad things happen to you, you immediately look to see what you did to produce it. All right, why is God punching me back? God must be punching me back right now. He's getting me. What did I do? It's a worldly fear. Always getting spanked. Always getting punished. Always getting grounded. This is why a lot of you, you have a very big difficulty in experiencing a rough moment with God and then immediately after experiencing a beautiful moment with God. For you, the two can't coexist in the same day or even the same hour. Right? You might have a good moment with God, but it has to be like weeks after your rough moment, right? Because for some reason, that time cleanses things. It's almost like if you whoop yourself long enough, you could feel good about yourself, like you've actually punished yourself enough that now you can show up before God and everything should be cool by then, right? See what this produces? A burned conscience? See what shame does? See what guilt does? It also produces an unholy activity in us where we take a scrub brush and we try to really clean this because when we look at the gospel, the gospel can't do the job. So I have to do it for God. And it produces this odd activity where we're active, but it's not the right kind of active. We do things like show up to something like this. We might do something like write checks. We might do something like volunteer, give of our time. We might even go into seminary to be a pastor all based on what we did back in the day, hoping that if we just do enough and we can clean enough, then God looks at us a very different way. It's a misdirect. A misdirect, some of you, I mean, I studied magic. Not, I don't believe in magic. Magic doesn't exist. But I studied illusion both on the street and on the stage. I love illusion and the sense of illusion. Um, and there's something that magicians and illusionists call the misdirect, right? And it's, some of you already know about it. I don't even have to describe it. But it's where you do something um, with, with one hand, a sleight of hand, but you need to obscure it. And magicians with small hands especially have to do this because it's harder for them to obscure the trick with their, with their big hands, right? So they might do something like have a flash or a bang or make a noise or start a conversation with someone. And while everyone else is re-diverting their attention, boom, the sleight of hand has done it. It only takes a second to get it done, right? And I feel like we do that with God. I feel like I do that with God sometimes. God, don't look at this. Don't look at my stain. Look at what I'm doing over here. Don't you see how I'm trying? God, don't, don't look at this. I know it's a mess. Look, I'm hiding it. I know it's bad, but don't, don't look at this. Look at what I'm trying to do for you over here. So we misdirect, and how do we do it? We go into seminary. <laughs> God, I know I sinned, but listen, I'm going to be a pastor for you. Listen, I know I sinned, but I'm going to get like three more accountability partners and a filter. Listen, I know I've sinned, but I'm going to show up to church every day this week. Right? I hope you see... Same thing I see and feel, and it's very easy for the people of God to live with broken consciences, with shame, dirty guilt, always a scowl on God's face, never confident before God, always ashamed to even think of Him, always stained, every day, never clean. It's easy. It's easy. And why do we feel like this, by the way? Where do we get this from? I'm pretty convinced that we treat God how we treat each other. That's the only basis we know on how to have a relationship is what we have horizontally, 
right? And we're very good disappointers. We're disappointing people. We disappoint each other. Um, we're disgusting. We do disgusting things to each other. People scowl at us for our disgusting things. We scowl at others for what they do that's disgusting towards us. It's how we treat each other. I think when we find ourselves at a place where we injure and sin against others, we just feel real guilty and awkward in their presence. And we usually skulk around and start improving our performance so it misdirects them from what we've really done to offend them to all the good things that we're trying to do, right? Look, I know that we argued last night, but look at the flowers I bought you, right? Listen, I know I, know I got drunk again, but I am going to call the pastor in the morning. It's hard for us to announce our faults without immediately showing people how we're instantly trying to clean ourselves. Look, I know I looked at junk online again, but listen, do you see how sad I'm about it? I mean, look at my frown. I'm really beating myself up over, over the whole thing. It's really frustrating me, and I hope you see that, and I hope it, hope it makes a difference. It's hard for us to enjoy the presence of those we offend until we have paid them off in good works. And I think we carry this straight up towards the Lord. This is why we can't imagine walking into a room full of people that we've offended. We can't imagine doing that. We would avoid that situation. And if we did have to enter that room, we'd never do it with confidence. Not until we've had a chance to clear our name. Not until we've had a chance to perform and to show them that we really are worth being in their presence. I think we've just never experienced a perfect relationship before. All we've got is flawed relationships with each other. But we've never really had a perfect one before. We have one with Christ. We have one with Jesus. And I think the gospel is going to go a long way to teach us here. So I'd like to look at a text that doesn't show us as much what Jesus does say as much as what he does and what his Father God says to him. Because it's going to help us with our shame. It's going to help us with that cloud of guilt that follows us. So there's going to be some passages of Scripture in here. We're going to have to learn a little bit. We're going to have to, there's a little bit of teaching in this. And there's going to be some stuff that's really going to press on you. Okay? And I encourage you to text your questions in. Text them in. We'll answer them. All right? Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am very disappointed. Right? This is my beloved son, with whom I am totally disgusted. With whom I am gagging over the thought of embracing him. Doesn't say any of that, does it? No. With whom I am well pleased. God's not disappointed with the actions in the person of Christ. Jesus didn't live a life that disappointed he never lived that way. So I'd like to look at this passage in Matthew. You keep your finger there and what it means for us today. But in order for me to do that, I have to show you another passage that's going to teach us. All these are going to connect to each other because they all talk about Jesus, but they're scattered all over the Bible. And the first one we're going to look at is Hebrews 9.12. That'll be up on the screen. Hebrews 9.12. The author of Hebrews says, He entered once, he meaning Jesus, by the way. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So he's comparing two different kinds of sacrifices. The one that the nation of Israel had always seen with goats and bulls and stuff like that, and then this new one in the new covenant with Jesus. Two sacrifices. 
Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our what? Our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. So what's going on? The author is saying that if the blood of animals was good enough in God's eyes to clean the sin away from his people, how much more is Jesus' sacrifice as a perfect sacrifice good not just to clean our sins from us, but also purify your conscience? Now that's a big deal. To clean your conscience? Listen, confidence before God is a big part of the gospel. It's not often taught about. I don't think it's often reflected on. Your confidence before God is a big part of the gospel story. A big part. A purified conscience where there's no stain. There's none of this. Many of you, you, when you, when you are in the presence of God or you show yourself before God, this is what you, you, you carry this with you. The blood of goats of all things, oddly enough, describes how this works. It's an odd little teaching, right? And I'm going to show you what I mean. In Leviticus, another passage that is going to be up on the screen. By the way, this isn't the part of your Bible with no highlighter marks or underlines. All the pages are brand new. It's an odd, it's a quirky little passage, it seems like. But this is where it's being prescribed how sacrifices are to be had, what we just read about in Hebrews. What is Hebrews talking about? It's talking about this right here. It says, Then he, it's Aaron, or the high priest, then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats. That's like flipping a coin, all right? He's going to flip a coin. One lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Okay, pause. Real weird right here. What it's talking about is there's two goats on this very special day to the Jews. Two goats would come, they'd flip a coin, one gets killed, the other one gets exiled. That's the punchline, right? So they'd bring the one that, that lost the coin toss, the one that's about to get killed, and what the priest would do is confess his sins and the sins of the nation over this goat and impute, ceremonial, ceremonially, impute those sins to the goat. So now the goat has all the sins, and the people do not. And then they would kill the goat. Now, that's called propitiation. That word is in your Bible. That's called a propitious sacrifice, or propitiation, right? What it means is this. Those sins must be punished. So what God allowed is for all those sins of the people to be transferred to the goat, the goat could receive the punishment, the people can go free. But God's justice is worked out. God's justice is fully exercised. So God is happy, his justice is shown, his mercy over his people, his grace over his people are also exercised at the same exact time. Now all of this, of course, is pointing to Jesus, right? Who is our propitiation. Who all The, the sins of all of his people are put on his back. And as he is killed, there is a life traded, his perfect life for our scandalous one. But because of what happens on this goat, this other goat comes along. And because of what happened with that goat, they confess their sins once again, the sins of the nation on this goat, and then some guy grabs a leash and carries him right out of the city. Right out into the wilderness, a few more blocks, and lets him go. He's a scapegoat. 
He's a scapegoat. That's called expiation. That's not in your Bible, by the way. But all expiation means is removal of guilt or removal of shame. So what's going on right here is not just the sins are being punished, but the guilt and the shame that come with the sin, that's being removed. That's being carried away. That's being put behind God, not to be remembered, buried, separated. That's the idea behind what's going on right here. Of course, again, it all points to Jesus. Because Jesus does not just take the punishment for our sins, but he also carries away the shame and he carries away the guilt. Do you see how that works? He's both. It all points to Jesus because he is our scapegoat. So what this means is the gospel is so good, the gospel is so good, it not only removes our sin and the charges against us, not only does that, but it removes our guilt and our shame, cleans our dirty conscience so that we can appear with confidence before the Lord. It's a big part of the gospel. Big part of the gospel. God is satisfied by what Jesus did on the cross. There are no longer any stains on you if you're a Christian. There are no longer any stains. This shirt is not reality for you. It's been carried away. Psalm says it's been carried away as far as the east is from the west, which is high symbolism, meaning that it cannot touch. They are very, very separated. So if God is satisfied with the work of Jesus and your shame has been removed, that means that you can appear before God with total confidence, knowing that this isn't what he sees, knowing that there's no scowl on his face. This is what Jerry Bridges says on this topic, and this is going to push on some of you. He says, there is nothing you will ever do that makes you acceptable to God. Nothing. Ever. You must be acceptable for Christ's sake. Regardless of how much you grow in Christ, regardless, you will never arrive at the point where your Christian character and conduct will make you acceptable to God. Never. You will always be dependent on the perfect righteousness of Christ. God will accept nothing else. You see, I think we struggle with this. My heart, if I could be totally honest with you, I struggle with this, this idea of this level of grace. I fight against it. My flesh, it fights against it a little because it feels a little irresponsible. It's hard for me to relax in a teaching like this because it just feels so reckless to just waltz around as, as if I've never done anything wrong in God's eyes. It feels wrong. It feels uncomfortable. And I've had definite pushback in the past on this. Luke, do you mean to tell me that my actions never please God? No, it's not what I'm saying. Actually, they, they do. They can. They just don't make you acceptable before God, right? My kids, they do things that please me all the time, right? But they don't do anything that make them more son or more daughter. They're always acceptable to me. Some of you live every single day with this cloud of shame, this cloud of condemnation, this undue guilt that is wrapped around your neck and you actually believe that God wants it to be there. That God is cool with it. That God has designed you to carry that around. I might need to explain right here, there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Some of you I've talked to about this and I don't know that I've ever preached on it. Conviction is a gift given to you by God through the person of the Holy Spirit. And what it does is conviction shows you what you're doing is wrong. That sin that you're doing is wrong, but condemnation says you are wrong, and everything about you is wrong. You see the difference? Conviction is what I'm doing is wrong. Condemnation is I am wrong. I am wrong. Listen, if you are far from God today, and you do not worship Jesus, he's not your king, you find yourself struggling there, 
God is allowing this condemnation in your life to drive you towards Him. You do have condemnation in your life, and it's just. It's just. Just as Paul says when he's talking about a group of believers, or not even a group of believers, but just a group of people in the, in the city of Corinth that love their sin more than God, he says their condemnation is just. If you have guilt on you and you're carrying guilt around and you don't love Jesus, friend, that's because you're guilty. You do have guilt around you. You're guilty. And if you feel this guilt, let it be the beginning of good news for you. Let it, let it be the, the, the sign that shows you how far you are from God so that you understand how beautiful the gospel really is. Because the gospel, grace to you, unmerited, brings you close across a gulf you could never cross yourself. Now, if you're a believer and you do love Jesus and you do worship God, you would not qualify yourself as somebody who is far from God, then Jesus has destroyed condemnation for you, but not conviction, right? That's why Paul says in Romans, for there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. It's, it's gone. It's destroyed. Jesus beat it up on, on the cross and out of an empty grave. So when you feel condemnation and when you feel shame, it doesn't belong to you. It's been scapegoated. It's been removed. It's been carried away. God will often tell you that your sins are wrong. He will never tell you you are wrong. I hope you hear that. I hope you hear that. But Luke, what about sin? Where does it go? If that's the case, then where does sin go? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. If you are an unbeliever and you find yourself far from God, again, I'm talking to a certain set of people in here. If you find yourself far from God, do not worship God. Maybe you're skeptic. Maybe you're looking, but you know you're not a Christian. Your sin doesn't really go anywhere. It's stored up, actually, to be punished at the end of all ends. It's being stored up. Every little thing you've done since you were born all the way to the time that you perish on this earth. Everything that you did, everything that you should have did that you didn't do, everything that you've thought, every little thing, even stuff that you've done in your dreams because you are by nature a sinner. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And all of it's been perfectly calculated, measured, set up, and it will all be perfectly and exhaustively punished. That's where it goes for you. It's just sitting in your lap, right? But if you're a believer, they're thrown away. Catch this now. They're not remembered. They're buried. Some of you feel like you might be cleaned by what Jesus has done, but that he's still against you. He's still scowling. Still scowling. I'm still stained. I'd like to look at a couple Old Testament passages. Now I'm throwing the ball way back. If you look at what Micah and Isaiah say, this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even came about on earth. Um, he says this, Who is God? Who is a God like you in Micah 7? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread out iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sin into the depths of the sea. Are you catching the imagery as far as the east is from the west? At the bottom of the ocean floor. These are places where those sins and the shame and the guilt that come with them cannot be resuscitated. Cannot be reprised. Isaiah 43. I, I am he who blots your transgression for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Now, there's a difference between not remembering and forgetting. Forgetting is like, ah, my keys, right? 
My wallet. I left my kid at the store. (laughs) We forget stuff because our mind is short. It's fractured by Adam's sin and the garden fractures us to where literally we forget stuff. That, That is even attributed to the fall. Not remembering is I choose not to bring that up and hold it as an account against you, right? Not remembering is not short of mind, it's big of heart. And that's what he's saying right here. Jerry Bridges goes on to say, think of some of your most recent sins. This is a fun exercise. Let's try it. Whatever they might be, think of some of your most recent sins. I mean, I fought with my wife yesterday, and I was a jerk. I'm being straight up too, I really did. And I was a jerk. I was mean to her. I know I've sinned today. I know I have. I've been lazy with some things. I, sh- I, sh- I just don't think I should have been lazy about it. What about some of you? How's it been going? Envy. Right? Judgment. Lust. It comes and goes so fast. Think of some of your most recent sins, even some of your big ones. God says he has put it out of his mind. Some of you, you hate this now. God says he has put it out of his mind. He remembers it no more. The work of Christ is finished. Nothing remains to be done. Our sins have been removed. Our sins have been removed. And what comes out of this good news, because this is incredibly good news, what comes out of this good news? Glad you asked. A purified conscience. A purified conscience. God through his gospel, cleans our conscience and takes away and carries away the shame and carries away the guilt. And now we have confidence. So you know that God is not over you. He's not all done with you. He doesn't gag over the side of you. He's not scowling at your stains. He's not finished with you. He's not writing you off. He might be dismayed by your sin, but he's not dismayed by you. He might be grieved by your sin, but you don't grieve him. He might be disgusted and disappointed in the acts of the sin, but he is not disgusted by you. There's such a big difference, and I think we get them really mixed up. Sure, some of you have sinned greatly today. Some of you have sinned greatly this morning, but God has put it out of his mind and put it behind his back. And you know what? He doesn't do that out of obligation. He loves to do that. It says right there, it says in Micah 7, he takes great joy not remembering your sins. He takes great joy taking that thing you did today, that thing while you're sitting there in your seat right now, that thing you did, he takes great joy in taking that sin and losing it in the ocean. You know why? Because he takes great joy in what his son did. He's well pleased with what Christ has done, so he's well pleased to get rid of your sin and to remember it no longer. It's important to know this. And the thing is, is God is actually more willing to bury our offenses than we are. We love to be martyrs, don't we? We love to just starve ourselves from God's presence until we feel like we actually deserve it again. We love to do that after we sin. But all that does is it reduces what Jesus has done. It shrinks him. If I become a martyr and I've just sinned and I'm going to start whooping myself and really just kind of frown all the time and really feel bad about myself and kind of down on myself, what I'm really doing is saying if I do this enough, if I whoop myself and torture myself enough, right, that I'm actually helping myself get closer to where God can stand me and not gag over me. But what that does is it says then what Jesus has done is not enough. So we shrink him on the cross. The cross isn't bloody anymore. Jesus becomes little mini Jesus. So there's a difference between making a little bit of your sin and making a lot of Jesus. So agree with your conscience. 
Your sin is dirty and you are a sinner. Agree with your conscience, but also agree with God when he says he's removed your shame and he's removed your guilt. Agree with both. And what does it mean to walk with confidence before God? There's two, there's, it means a bunch of things. I found two that I think are probably most poignant for us today. One of these things is, is it'll help you see that God's discipline is good to you and not a punishment. When you walk with a purified conscience before God, then whenever you feel discipline, it seems good to you. It's not punishment. I think what we usually do is we usually skulk around in shame before people that we've offended until they're satisfied. The thing is, is God is already satisfied. God's satisfied and it had nothing to do with you, right? So you don't have to skulk. You don't have to walk with your shoulders all pulled in and your head down. If anything happens to you that's a little weird, know that it comes from a satisfied God, not a God that's in payback mode trying to get you back, trying to get some revenge on you because he's keeping score. It's not what's going on. You will be disciplined, however, and that's because he loves you. That's a grace to you. See, again, just as people have a hard time understanding the difference between, um, uh, I don't know, what, what, what did I just named a little bit ago that people were struggling? Condemnation and conviction. I think punishment and discipline are something that we get those terms confused as well, right? Punishment is punitive. There's no love expressed. So when, when the gavel drops and the sentence is spoken out, that person is punished. Rehabilitation isn't really the, the highest concern. Loving that person is not really the highest concern. It's punitive. They have done something. They pay the price. Discipline is just well cradled in love. I don't really punish my kids. I discipline my kids. Why? Because there's love accompanying it. I want, I want to see them reformed. I want to see them grow. It's my deepest passion to see that happen. And I think a lot of times when we feel disciplined as Christians, we think we're being punished. He's in payback mode. He's getting me back. This isn't good. It's not good. I think another thing that we can do is we can get ourselves in a place where we are not able to run to God right after we sin. A purified conscience makes us to where we can run to God right after our, our sin. A lot of times whenever we sin, we wait for a certain amount of time. And it's different for every person, and it varies, and it's scalable according to the offense. If you've done something really horrible, people just disappear off the grid. They're gone. Changing their number. Deleting Facebook. You know, they just, it's just dramatic. It's all drama. And they separate themselves for a long time. And then after a certain amount of time has passed, then they can come back to God, right? Then they can pursue God. Do you realize that you could sin and immediately with confidence enter into praise and worship with God? Feels weird, doesn't it? Doesn't that feel dirty? To actually have sinned, have done something, to have gossiped, to have lusted, to have done something horrible and immediately press into the throne room of God's presence with a confidence on you. That's what happens when you have a purified conscience. And this is why people hate, hate, hate the doctrine of grace. They hate it. The idea that we could get something despite us, even though we try to earn it ourselves or push it away, even though we deserve the opposite, the fact that he gives us beautiful, unmerited favor, it's uncomfortable for folks. It feels reckless. It feels dirty. And chief of them all, it takes a scrub brush out of our hands. We're not in control. God did it for us. To tie all these passages together, I'm landing the plane, to tie all these passages together is this brilliant one in Hebrews 10. With all of what you've heard, read this passage. It says, Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, which is what we've been talking about, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And I love this verse 24, and I love it that it's here in the Bible and not somewhere else. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, confidence before God means confidence with each other. One reason we neglect to meet with each other constantly as the days go on. One reason we, we neglect to do that is because we feel like everybody sees this. All they can see is our stain. Of course they can't because they're so busy looking at their own, just like you are. Can't see theirs, but yours is in living color, and you feel like you're being audited and assessed the whole time, right? And so we separate ourselves until we feel like we've done a good enough job cleaning this. Here the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. Let us consider how to do this more and more because the truth is, that we don't have the stains anymore. They're gone. They've been lifted. We don't wear clothing with stains on it. We wear what the Bible calls garments of salvation, which means that they've been changed. You're not wearing what you're wearing in God's eyes. We're wearing another's robe. Isaiah calls it the robe of righteousness, not one that we stitch together with our own performance, not one that we stitch together with our own works, but one that has been made for us and gifted to us, totally despite us. But what does that mean? What does that mean to have a robe of righteousness? Look back at your Bibles in Matthew 3. Right back at your Bible. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, just as we saw earlier. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice said from heaven, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Friend, that's been given to you. A life perfectly lived has been given to you, Christian. He's well pleased with you. He's not scowling. He's well pleased with you. But Luke, I've done that sin again for like the 9,373rd time. I keep doing it. He's well pleased with you. Not well pleased with what you're doing. He's well pleased with you. With you. Luke, I know, but I'm not even trying hard. I mean, I kind of like the sin still. You know, I'm struggling with it. I put it down, pick it up, put it down, pick it up. And I'm not trying as hard as I'd like to try. Friend, he is pleased with you. He's pleased with you. Not pleased with what you're doing. He's grieved by what you're doing, but he's pleased with you. Yeah, Luke, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to sin again. I just know how I am. I know how this sin is. I know it's difficult. And I can't promise that it's not going to happen again. Friend, listen to me. He's well pleased with you. He's grieved and disgusted by the sin. He is not grieved and disgusted by you. He's not. You are loved well beyond your works because of the works of another. Because of the works of another. And that's why grace is so uncomfortable. Many people don't want God to be well-pleased with them until they feel like they're pleasing. Many God don't even, we don't even want God to be well-pleased with us until we feel like we're worth being thought of that way. But here's a newsflash. It's never going to happen. 
You're never going to feel that way. And if you do, it's just self-righteousness and that's a sin. <laughs> Again, we, we sin because we're sinners. This is what it says in Isaiah 64. We have all become like one who is unclean. We've all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All of us. It runs through everything we do, even the good stuff we do. Even the good things we do, there's weird motives in it a lot of times. Sin runs systemically through everything we do. But God is graceful. And He is our scapegoat. And He's carried away your shame. And He's carried away your guilt. So what do we do? We obey. We obey and we enjoy Jesus. We don't obey because we get extra credit. We don't obey Him so that we secure our salvation. We obey because we love Him and are heavily loved. We obey because it's a joy for us. It's a, it's a joy for us to do the things that He calls us to do. When Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, after they expressed what it looked like to have godly sorrow over their sin, so what he's saying is, hey, there's a church in Corinth, and they saw their sin and they saw the gospel. They were eager. They were earnest. They had a holy indignation against their sin. They longed for God. They had a zeal for God. This is what it looks like. So as we finish, Jesus never says to those who have been rescued by His gospel, He never says, I can see your stain and you have some cleaning to do. Friend, you gag me. Go take a shower and get that taken care of. And then I'll take the scowl off my face. He doesn't say that. He never says that. So listen, when we worship today, when we're worshiping and you're singing, you're, you're writing checks, you're shaking hands, you're taking communion, you're praying, you're listening. As we do this today, do so as a person who doesn't look like this. You have no stain, Christian. You have no stain. Christian, hear me. You have no stain. You have new garments on you. You were dressed by another. You didn't put them on yourself. Right? You have no stain. When you praise God, you have no stain before you. You have confidence. Have confidence. You belong there. Not because you've done anything, because He won you. He rescued you. You belong there. He's not scowling at you. He's excited. He loves you. He's passionate for you. And as you sing, His heart swells. He loves you. Listen, I've not given you a checklist today, Christian. Ten ways in which to have a better day today or a better day tomorrow. I'm not giving that to you. I'm not going to give it to you. What I wanted you to do today is see how beautiful God is. See how intoxicating and yet how uncomfortable His grace is all at the same time. To see how beautiful you look in His eyes because of what His Son has done. And to see how your shame and your guilt has carried away. That it would alter everything you do before the eyes of God. That's what I want. But listen, if you're far from God, again, if you're far from God, and you do not call Him King, listen, let the condemnation and the guilt that follows you every day that you walk up, every day that you wake up and go to work, every day you put on this shirt, let it drive you to Christ. Let it drive you. Let it break your knees before God. Let it put you on your face before God and call Him King as you take your crown off and put it at His feet. Let the good news of His gospel become your good news. Let it happen today. Don't wait a second. Don't hesitate. Make His good news your good news. Go ahead and stand with me and we're going to pray. And if you're newer to Legacy or you're a little bit of a guest, how this works is, is whenever they lead us through worship, we have communion in the back, right? And this is for you as a church. 
If you're a part of the church of God and you find yourself a Christian, we encourage you to take communion, right? Take it with your family. That's the best way to take it. If you're here with your family, take it with your family. If you're here with your calm group or you're single or you've got your best friend, take it in plurality. It's the best way to take communion. Pray with somebody and do so as a person where what that wine represents the blood. That blood has washed away all of your stains. Today is a beautiful day for you, friend. If you worship God, today is a beautiful day for you. If you're not a Christian, we'd say don't worry about the communion. We'd rather you take Jesus Christ instead and make Him your own. right? And that all can happen right here. That can all happen in this moment as they lead us through song. You can just filter back and, and grab the elements whenever you feel like it, whenever it's convenient for you. We'll have people back in the corners. okay? We'll have Kevin. We'll have Chris. Will you be able to be back there for a little bit? Chris and Brandy will be back there. Wes, will you be back in that corner? We'll have folks back there that can talk to you and pray with you. If you need someone to talk to you, if you need someone to pray with you, I'll be back there as well. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for being my scapegoat. You are my scapegoat, Father. You took my sin, and then you took the shame. You could have left the shame. Lord, you could have just cleaned us and just let us deal with a dirty conscience. You could have made it to where we always felt like we were just underneath a scowl you'd have been right to do that but father you're too good you're too glorious and your grace just amazes me still we love you as a church but father i don't want to worship you and pray and read and do this thing called church and mission and communion i don't want to do it father trying to erase guilt that i have i don't want to do it to manipulate you to get you to like me more but Father, that we would do it because we are heavily liked, heavily loved, heavily provided for. You are so good. We love you, Jesus. We love you. We love you. We celebrate our new garments. We celebrate a robe of righteousness that you've given by your right hand. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.